namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami The next talk in the series of uh, Don't Take Your Life Personally by uh, Ajahn Sumato is given on the next day, uh, the 8th of August 2002, the previous one was on the 7th. But uh, before I begin I thought I would um, uh, follow up on the question that uh, was yesterday about um, how uh, can the awareness of a baby be compared to the awareness of somebody dying. And so um, <clears throat> a relevant story popped into my mind afterwards, which relates very much to, to here at Amravati. So some of you might be familiar with the little um, stupa out in the Buddha Grove. Uh, in, uh, and there's a, a little plaque at the bottom of it which uh, says, um, <clears throat> uh, to, uh, to Declan, and it has his dates, I think, of... Uh, 1989 to uh, 1991, and then it just says the words, who died, uh, with no question mark, just Declan, who died. And uh, the um, story behind that is that um, uh, a woman called uh, Pamela Bruckshaw, who used to be in Anagarika here um, for a, a year or so, back in the 80s, and she left and um, got together with uh, Jez, who helps a lot with the um, uh, summer camp, and they had a child together. And uh, Pamela described how when her child was born, the boy was called, uh, called Declan, after St. Declan the Truth Seeker, who's an Irish saint who predates uh, St. Patrick even. She said that when he was born, and she first looked into, her, uh, into his eyes, she had this ex- uh, experience of <clears throat> being in the presence of someone, something really, really old and really, really big. There was this sense of and the mother and the child looking into each other's eyes, and it was the impression that she had. And they were sort of looking at each other, and then, and then she said, and then after a few minutes, he, he shrank, and he was a baby. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, <clears throat> uh, then uh, he was uh, very much part of the, the uh, uh, say, the community life here in uh, Amravati, uh, coming along with Jez and Pamela and uh, when he was one year old, and then uh, also visiting, living in, in Brighton, I think, in those days. And uh, when he was about two, then he came along for the second family camp, and he was a bit sickly during the camp, and Pamela went been to the doctor in the local town a couple of times, saying, I'm worried about my boy, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's kind of mopey, and he doesn't seem well, and they said, oh, it's just, he's car sick from the ride up here from Brighton, you know, don't worry about it, and sent her away. Um, but anyway, during the time of that summer camp, uh, <coughs> Sister <coughs> Suripanya, who was one of the Siladara here, was a very good builder, and she was constructing that little stone stupa, the, the flint stupa, out in the middle of the Buddha Grove. And in the middle of the afternoon, Declan uh, got sort of his sort of peak energy of the day, and he liked to go out, and Pamela would take him out to the stupa to watch... Um, uh, Sister Siripanya building it, and he liked to put stones into the cement and uh, uh, add on to the stupa as she was constructing it. 
But then his sickness, he got sicker and sicker, and then suddenly he stopped breathing, and they, they rushed him to the to um, Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, uh, and, uh, and uh, but sadly he passed away the, that night in the hospital uh, while the, the family camp was still going on. And Pamela described how when um, she was holding him, and, and what happened was that he'd been born with a brain tumor that had been slowly expanding through his, the early uh, years of his life, and it was creating pressure on the brainstem, so it, it, was, it was not operable. And um, it just pressure, it caused pressure on the brain stem so that his breathing functions and main vital functions were all obstructed. And so uh, he, he passed away. But she said what happened as she was holding him as he was dying was that he expanded again. That she was holding him and looking at him and suddenly it kind of reversed itself. And he went from being this little two-year-old child in her arms to being this, this feeling of a great presence and uh, peacefulness and and size, and again this feeling of some of some being that was very very old and very very big, and then he passed away. So um, one of the things that um, you know, this was was a very powerful and uh, impactful experience. Obviously, I mean, a, a person, a woman having her child die at the age of two is very very tragic and sad, but because of those very strong feelings that she had. She said it was difficult to think that you know my little baby died. It was more like, along with that, yes, my baby did die, but along with that, there was this kind of visitation that this some kind of great being arrived in our family and it was here with us for a couple of years, and then it moved on. And so then, uh, it, it was a, a, a powerful thing. She talked a lot with uh, Lumpur Sumato and other Sangha members about it at the time. Because she said, sometimes people accuse me of being not upset enough. You know, why aren't you sad? You know, you've lost your child. You should, you should be, you know, grief stricken. You should be you know, crying all day. And well, you're not exactly, but you know, a sense of how come you're not so sort of distressed or upset? And she said, well, I am. But then also there was this sense of, well, yes, he was a little baby, and no, he wasn't. There was this other dimension that was there. And uh, she's not. She's much more of an intuitive type than a logical type, uh, Pamela. And so that those feelings were were absolutely uh, real and, and tangible for her, and she couldn't just ignore that. And so that was. Um, I felt a very, uh, very sort of powerful and, and uh, uh, meaningful uh, experience in her life. And so, when we talk about uh, a baby having an awareness, it's like uh, at least within the context of of uh, Buddhist psychology, um, Buddhist. Um, uh, mythology that uh, you know, a, a being uh, arrives in a in a birth, but what uh, where where that being what that being has been doing before, or what their karmic history might be, is another thing altogether. So even though the body might be you know, a couple of hours old, the 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 mind that has just uh, crystallized into that particular uh, sort of uh, locus of uh, of experience might be uh, very very old, very very ancient. So and uh, and very spiritually mature. So without getting into too much speculation, I just thought I'd share that with you. And also how um, we get so easily identified with roles. Like you know, Pamela felt like he's much older than I am. <laughs> that she felt kind of uh, smaller or kind of younger or more diminished or sense of this is a a, a more kind of ancient and mature being than I am. And I'm, I'm the, the mother, but there was that feeling of. Oh, well, who's this, and where where did they come from? 
And so that even though we think, well, the parent is older than the child, it, uh, that's only one particular way of, uh, of regarding it. So anyway, to carry on, this talk, this is called Disruption Belongs. I try to encourage the sense of trusting in the ability to reflect, the ability to bring into consciousness the way it is. This is not taking a position on any issue or any particular Buddhist doctrinal teaching because that will be starting from something acquired. We read Buddhist literature, Buddhist scriptures, and tend to grasp ideas without knowing what we're doing. We tend to believe in doctrines and have faith or trust in them, but teachings, teachers, and traditions at this moment are just objects to us. We are not born as Theravadan Buddhists with Buddhist ideas, principles, or views. These are all acquired later. And most of us here have moved towards Buddhism out of choice. Something in us was attracted to the teachings of the Buddha, which somehow resonated with us. The point, then, is to take the Buddha's teachings and use them to reflect, to reflect on in terms of our own experience. So again, this is a very, very uh, uh, common distinction that uh, Lumpur is making, often because he was talking to people who love ideas and, and words and read lots of books and have uh, lots of opinions, that he was always trying to uh, emphasize that when he uses the word reflect, it's not a meaning to form an opinion about or take a fixed view about, but to have a sense of stepping back and to consider, to look at what's going on. How is this? Where does this come from? What's causing this? Why, does, why is this interesting and that uninteresting? Why is this attractive and that uh, irritating? So that uh, he uses the word reflection over and over, and it's uh, talking about that, that innate quality of the mind and its ability to explore, to look at experience, and to recognize the patterns of, of what's going on uh, and not being dominated by fixed views and opinions and, and belief systems. The first noble truth, there is suffering, dukkha, is not a doctrine that we're expected to believe in. It is simply pointing to a reality that we all experience. So it's a matter of noticing suffering, dissatisfaction, discontent, and relatively innocuous forms of suffering that we experience all the time. I find, for example, that self-consciousness is dukkha. The point, then, is to notice that. So self-consciousness in that respect means kind of feeling shy or like, oh dear, they're looking at me. That, uh, that's what we mean by the English word self-consciousness. The point, then, is to notice that. Much of the emphasis in my monastic life has been on formal meditation. And there was a lot of suffering at first for me when I tried to practice. It wasn't that there was any social pressure and the conditions were tranquil enough, but there was pain in my knees from sitting cross-legged, frustrations of the mind and obsessive thoughts and emotions. So, even though I was in a serene and tranquil situation, when I reflected on these things, I saw the suffering, dukkha. It wasn't a question of trying to convince myself of anything, but of just reflecting that dukkha is like this. This word dukkha, as John Peacock, one of the other people teaching at the Leicester Summer School, as John Peacock was saying yesterday, is not adequately translated as suffering. But I think it is good enough, actually. 
It gets the idea across. You don't have to be all that precise with terminology when you're looking at the reality. You might not have experienced any great crisis, tragedy or terrible thing that has shattered your life, but still there might be a general feeling of unease. Being critical of yourself is dukkha, isn't it? When you really look at self-disparagement and the feeling, I'm not good enough the way I am, you can see that even that is dukkha. Maybe you are not aware of doing it. Maybe it's just a kind of habit in the background that influences you unintentionally, unconsciously. But what is this sense of not being good enough or not being as good as somebody else? By reflecting on these things, you begin to notice the feelings of inadequacy. Not as something that you should not be feeling, or as some kind of personal fault, another fault you need to get rid of, but that they are like this. You might also notice subtle emotional habits, dread, or a sense of loneliness, or feeling ill at ease, and that they are felt in the body, maybe in the abdomen or the heart. When we, fir when we, when we first start learning how to meditate, we are usually encouraged to practice some kind of tranquility meditation. Practice to calm the mind, to tranquilize, to bring peaceful mental states, such as mindfulness of the breath. If we concentrate on the movement of breathing and learn to sustain our attention on it over a period of time, we feel a sense of calm, because there is nothing in the breath to stir up emotion. And the more concentrated we become, the finer the breath becomes, until it almost seems to disappear. It can become so calm, in fact, that we might think that we have stopped breathing. I've been through various techniques, there are all kinds, mantra, mindfulness of breathing, tranquility, samatha practices, and so on. And I think now that what people generally regard as meditation is simply being successful at calming themselves down and going into a state of tranquil concentration. Now, if you've been meditating for as long as I have, you find that it is quite easy to do this. It wasn't easy in the beginning, but I gradually acquired a kind of skill at it. If I turn around now and look at the shrine, this Buddha image, and if there are no loud noises or irritating things impinging on me, I can become very tranquil. Then I turn around again, and there you are. And now the conditions are different, aren't they? Looking at you is different from looking at the Buddha Rupa. The point to notice is the difference. Buddha Rupas to me, I've been looking at them for many years, are usually calming images. They are icons that convey this message of tranquility and peace. It's very pleasant actually living in a monastery where there are lots of Buddha images. These are not passionate figures reminding one of greed, hatred and delusion. There is usually a sense of poised calm and awakened serenity about them. Something we are all looking for. If we get into the aesthetics of Buddha Rupas, of course, we might find that we don't particularly like some of them and sit looking at them critically. And then we don't achieve tranquility. If we're too concerned about the aesthetics of Buddha Rupas, we simply miss the point. Some are obviously more beautiful than others, of course. The ones found recently in China, for instance, are all very lovely figures that please the eye. It was uh, discovered in 1996 and exhibited at the Royal Academy of Arts in London in 2002. So uh, same year that uh, these talks were given. And it does help to have something aesthetically pleasing to look at that doesn't bring out negative or critical mental states. So it is a question of just noticing the way it is 
and how we relate to things and people. <clears throat> so that the uh, again this uh, point that Lumpur was emphasizing with the um, the quality of dukkha, and uh, when he says it's suffering, then our ordinary everyday use of the word suffering generally means some kind of intense pain or some kind of crisis in your life or some sort of tragedy or conflict. But uh, the um, uh, often the more subtle aspects of that uh, are, are missed. And so that, um, uh, in, in a way, the word suffering uh, in the context of Buddhist meditation and the practice tradition like we have here, it, it takes a broader meaning than we would use in ordinary, every, everyday English life. So a way of translating dukkha is that that feeling of, of things being out of balance or that it, it sh- the sense of it shouldn't be this way or a sense of... of um, Things being <clears throat> kind of imperfect or incomplete in some way, just uh, it's this isn't quite good. But you know, yesterday it was great, or last year it was great, or tomorrow it might be better. That it can be even that subtle sense of oh, I, I want this to be over so I can get to that. And uh, the um, in uh, Venerable Analio's book about Satipatthana, <coughs> the uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, he made the very useful observation that the word dukkha in Pali. Is is uh, uh, comes from the root of the way uh, 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 a wheel spins on its axle. So the akka, like our English word axle, is probably related to the the Pali akka. So the the axle of a wheel is what the the wheel spins around. And so the akka is like the hole in the center of the of the wheel that the axle goes through. And du is a prefix which means uh, incorrect or bad or wrong or out of balance. And so du akka means like a, a wheel that's not set uh, uh, truly on the, on the axle. So the wheel is, is wobbling. So any of us who've ever tried to push a wheelbarrow or a shopping cart with a wonky wheel or usually the one that you choose at the airport, to, you find it's kind of veering off, down to, off to the left or the right or colliding with the person next to you. Or if you're in the supermarket, it sort of takes you into the, into the, uh, the stack of fruit juices. So that's dukkha. That's the uh, the things that are out of balance. So that that feeling of not quite rightness, or um, it shouldn't it shouldn't be this wayness. That um, that is in, in essence what we mean by the uh, the word dukkha in this respect. And so that the um, uh, when, what Lumpur is pointing to here again is say when you begin to notice feelings of inadequacy, or like oh, I'm not really very good. I'm not I'm not explaining this very well. Or I don't really understand this, or um, that taking that judgment, which and it can be quite accurate. You know, if you if you are not very good at doing something, like yesterday I was using the example of you know, somebody who say living in the monastery in Thailand, and every day we because it was a forest monastery, and in Thailand they don't have four seasons; they basically have three, um, and uh, so that they don't really have an autumn where where all of the leaves drop off the trees. They drop off the trees all year round. That's a, they don't have deciduous. Uh, you know, they don't have all the leaves falling off, and they're having a cold season when there's no leaves. But the leaves pass every day. So leaf sweeping becomes one of the main jobs you do in the monastery. So for someone who, you know, Lumpochar would say, "It's amazing that monk's been here for five years, and he can't. And every time he picks up a broom to sweep the leaves, he ends up injuring himself, or he trips over, or he, he kind of makes more makes uh, uh, more more mess than uh, than there was when he started out." Hey, how amazing that somebody can be so kind of uh, unskilled at that. So you might be that person who's a, as a kind of a failed leaf sweeper, but you can recognize, I'm not very good at this, 
And so it might be an accurate judgment that is being made you know, in terms of leaf-sweeping abilities, if you, if you follow the, the thread. And it can be that, yeah, I'm not very good at this, but does the mind need to make a problem out of that? That's uh, the... Um, uh, the the uh, uh, the particular issue about dukkha. It's not being passive or not caring, but recognizing. Yeah, I'm I'm just not very good at this. Like I, I I've often mentioned, I don't have very good hand-eye coordination. So for sewing, it's hand sewing. I'm okay, <laughs> but sewing with a machine, it's uh, I would find it was virtually impossible to get a straight line. And other people uh, like uh, Joseph Kappel, who was the abbot of Wat Nanachart when I first showed up there. Yet his uh, his eye hand eye coordination is really excellent, so he could just sit down on the machine, a sewing machine, and just draw uh, you know like a laser straight uh, uh, line of stitches just without even really trying. How did you do that? That's amazing, and I'd you know, really focus and do my best, and it would be you know wobbling around all over the place. And no matter how hard I tried, something just couldn't quite get the hand and the eye to to work smoothly together. So you recognize when. You know, for our, uh, all of our own lives, so each of us have our own particular skills, and difficulties, and abilities and disabilities. You see, yes, that <clears throat> the the issue is if you do things well, can you not make a a, a big ego trip out of it? Say, so look at me! I, I can, every every line I do is absolutely straight. You know? uh, or if you you can never sew a straight line, can you recognize? Yep, that's not my strong suit. That's not what I'm good at. That's a uh, don't don't put me in charge of sewing. <laughs> so that um, uh, the recognition that oh yeah the uh, uh, say here it is in this moment there's this experience um, of I'm feeling inadequate or I'm not very good at this. It can be accurate, but you still don't have to make a problem out of it. And so when Lumpur speaks about uh, reflection, it's uh, recognizing these subtle emotional habits. Like if that can be that you're somehow you feel that you're special, or that you're um, that you're more important than other people, or that you're always you want to see yourself as a victim, or that you're unwell. And people don't realize I'm a sick person. You know, they don't appreciate. I'm really not. A, you know, I'm I'm not well. <laughs> you want to be, uh, you want to be uh, say seen in a particular way, or you're judging others, or you're judging the world in a particular way. So as Lumpur puts it. Uh, you notice the subtle emotional habits. So it's not saying that being critical or being self-concerned or being um, kind of, uh, uh, excitable or depressive is anything intrinsically wrong with that. The practice of Dhamma is recognizing what those habits are, recognizing how the, those particular perceptions and the conditioning of the mind, the body, the whole life system, how that how that works. And then through seeing how those patterns work, then the skill is not identifying with them. You can't just change your eye color or change the size of your feet. or you can't, I can't just make myself able, able to sew a straight line. It just <laughs> didn't happen. Um, but you are uh, you're recognizing that you don't have to identify with that. You don't have to build a personality around that or don't have to make it a, a, a particularly important issue. Any questions, reflections, any of that? You can, also about Declan and uh, the... Uh... Thank you for telling us about Declan, because for years I've been wondering about it. Uh, who it was. Oh, that little inscription, yeah. You never knew.
And she very deliberately left off the question mark. There was a book that was published around that time, a bit earlier, by Stephen Levine called Who Dies? Um, and so it was somewhat inspired by that, but she very deliberately left the question mark off. Who died? So it can be a question or it can be a statement. So that uh, then he went on to speak about um, uh, peaceful objects, and uh, as, uh, as he says, uh, uh, now what people generally regard as meditation is simply being successful at calming themselves down and going into a state of tranquil concentration. So that's sort of how people generally use the word meditation. So he's leading into um, speaking about meditation with a, a broader perspective and how, uh, and then the point about looking at the Buddha Rupa is, yeah, if you put your attention onto a peaceful object, and I imagine he's going to turn around and, and look at the Buddha Rupa and said, yeah, and the, uh, the point of a Buddha image as a physical form, it's supposed to be a representation in material form in a, with the, using a human, um, the, uh, the human physical shape as its basis for uh, uh, describing or, uh, say, being a, uh, a representation of the embodiment of wakefulness. So that when you look at a Buddha image, it's like wakefulness crystallized. It's a, the quality of uprightness, quality of peacefulness, so that the, those qualities of the Buddha, of, of Nibbana, of peacefulness, of, uh, of awareness, vijja, uh, that quality of serenity and energy, calmness, are ideally embodied in the, the form of a Buddha Rupa. And so that, yeah, if you say look at a Buddha image, then... Uh, that's the the point of having a, a physical form that is supposed to help evoke and uh, those qualities from within your heart to strengthen those capacities of our own heart. But he says, as uh, as he said, you can focus on the aesthetic quality of the Buddha image, like like this one here. So many people say, what happened to his ears? You know, is that some kind of <laughs> kind of alien from a different dimension? So this is a. Uh, uh, so you, you can look at this, rather than being an uh, embodiment of wakefulness and peace, you can look at it and think, wow, it's got really, it's a really weird head arrangement, and how come he's wearing a crown? Or, or, a, you know, even without the frilly bits around the edges, those are really, really big earrings. How come the Buddha's wearing earrings? You know, and so on and so forth. So this came from Burma, um, and also when it was given uh, to, donated, uh, invited here to Amravati, part of the uh, of the, um, the the white sort of uh, aura uh, piece of it was broken off, and it was recreated by Ajahn Vimalo when he was still a layperson, who was a very skilled uh, artist and um, sculptor, painter. And so we have had art historians <coughs> who come here and thought, "Oh, you've ruined it! You've ruined it! It's appalling! It's dreadful!" You know, how could you, as a, a, a as a sort of uh, uh, kind of modern uh, people put together this ghastly repair job. You completely ruined the whole thing. It's no longer genuine. And so Lumpur would say, genuine? It's a symbol of peace and wakefulness. You know. But to the art historian, it's, you know, its value as a, a, a historical Buddha Rupa from, from Burma has been completely destroyed because it's got this resin and marble dust addition. 
that actually, most people would never even know. But this, that's an add-on. That's, that's a repair. You know, you've, you've ruined it because it's repaired. So that particular person, the karma of being an art historian, meant all they could see was this modern repair job. You destroyed it. So Lumpur, of course, thought that was hilarious. Yeah, destroyed, he fixed it. <laughs> I asked him to do it. He said, no, but you've ruined, you've ruined it, you've ruined it. You're welcome to that opinion, if you like. But that was a, a very good example of seeing how one person's conditioning or one person's perceptions, they, they create a, uh, uh, an image that they see things in a particular way and others don't see it that way at all. And so then, um, and, and his point about turning around and seeing all different people, then you have names and personalities and stories and, and interactions, and so that stimulates more feeling of liking, disliking, knowing, not knowing, and the, uh, the kind of um, array, the range of different perceptions and feelings that arise through human contact, and, and taking in the perceptions of the, the human world. And he goes on to develop this point. When we eat our meal at Amravati, two rows of monks sit facing each other, and I sit at one end, facing down the middle of them. That's how it used to be. Uh, uh, we used to have the at the meal time. We used to have the all of the uh, the sangha members used to be in in the sala until things got too crowded. So Lumpur would sit up here, maybe like a, a line of monks on either side, um, and then the nuns would be over here, and Lumpur would be on this side at the end. A line of monks. And so sit in the middle and have a, a line down this side and a you know, line down that side. When we eat our meal at Amravati, two rows of monks sit facing each other, and I sit at one end facing down the middle of them. A few years ago, the monk sitting on one side of me was always fidgeting and was basically a nervous wreck. And the one on the other side was depressed. <laughs> And the messages they were giving off, I noticed, did affect me. It isn't that things uh, like that have no effect on one's consciousness. Incidentally, the two monks that occupy these positions now are very serene. So it's quite enjoyable looking at them. Aesthetically, it's pleasing to see happy faces and serene expressions. This is just the way it is. I don't consider this to be a personal flaw in my character. In finding that, it's just obvious that the things around us affect us. This morning in the meditation, I walked into the lounge and saw Maxine reading a newspaper. She said she didn't usually read newspapers because of how they made her feel, and I agree. When you read newspapers, you're generally absorbing dismal information. It's like negative, depressing, unhappy, unpleasant information. And it does affect your consciousness. If all the horrors, scandals and corruptions of the world are put into your mind, it does have an effect in the moment. That's just an observation, a reflection. So, if you read gossip and bad news, you get a kind of negative feeling, just by thinking about the horrible things that are happening in the world. Nevertheless, you can still reflect on the fact that it is like this. By being aware of it in this way, you then cease to resent the world for not always looking like a Buddha Rupa, or being a serene paradise where everything is pleasing, because that is not the way it is. Much of the world is unpleasing. Many things we experience are upsetting or depressing or unpleasant. 
Now it's possible to become a retreat junkie, an obsessed meditator with a leave-me-alone kind of attitude. I don't want to know. I don't want to participate in the world because it just upsets me so much. If you're too attached to tranquility, you become a control freak. You have to control everything around you. The ability to reflect, of course, brings you into the present. Through trusting in awareness, then, you begin to recognize a state of peace that is with you all the time, that is not dependent on lack of impingement or sensory deprivation. You then see the Dhamma. You get in touch with what you might call your true nature or the Buddha nature, that which most people are not really aware of. You might also experience moments like this through sensory deprivation, of course, and it's possible to experience a sense of oneness or peace and calm and identify with it, identify it with a meditation technique you're practicing or a particular environment or with lack of coarse impingement. If you think you can only have a sense of oneness through depriving your senses of harsh impingement, however, you will grasp the desire to control things. You'll try to avoid anything harsh or unpleasant. That's the logic of it. As you develop more insight and wisdom, however, you begin to recognize that whether you turn to face the shrine or remain facing the people, it doesn't really matter. Because the Dhamma, that sense of peace and calm, is something that is always here once you begin to recognize it. And nothing, no matter how harsh or horrible, can destroy that. It's always here. This is not something you create through tranquilizing your mind or through any technique, but it's a reality you tend to overlook when you're caught up in reacting too strongly to sensory impingement or liking or not liking the things that you're experiencing. So this is a, an enormously important point. So uh, if you uh, get a sense of uh, that, um, the quality of awareness, whether what you're being aware of is a completely empty mind and uh, clarity and peacefulness and, uh, and a sense of ease, or whether you're aware of standing uh, on, the, uh, on the tube in the London Underground with 200 people squished in, or whether you're in the middle of the Sala Amarati with, with uh, 150 people all trying to get in the food line before you. <laughs> There's noise and activity and kids running around, or you've got a, in the middle of a family argument, that essentially... That awareness of the family argument or 150 people aiming for the servery or the awareness of a, a quiet mind or, or alone in the field watching the sunset, the awareness is exactly the same. The objects in the field of experience are changing. But in that moment, there's this seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, knowing, arising and passing away. How could the object uh, of awareness intrinsically uh, interrupt or obscure the subject. This is a, a, the basic principle. And so when the, 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 the heart really embodies that quality of knowing, of awareness, uh, then the, uh, that quality of, of knowing and uh, say openness of heart uh, attending to the present, uh, that uh, uh, brings a quality of peace and brightness to it that is completely independent of what's going on around you. The mind isn't dissociated or or abstracted, you know, disconnected from uh, what's going on, what the objects are in the field of experience, but whether they are bright and loud and mobile, or whether they are peaceful and serene, or everything in between, makes no difference. So this is the, the point that Lumpur is making here. 
The sense of peace and calm is completely independent of the activity. So you can be a, a totally calm in the midst of extreme noise and busyness. That uh, that quality of of the subject is independent of the activity of the object. Does that make sense? So this is really in sense that that's the practice of Dhamma. Really, is uh, that uh, say that. Um, not being dependent or not looking for peace or fulfillment or completion in terms of the objects that are appearing and disappearing within the, the field of experience. That the objects can do whatever they like, but the quality of, of, of the Dhamma is always uh, apparent here and now, that, that quality of, of awareness, which is the primary attribute of the Dhamma. The Buddha, uh, that quality of knowing, arises from the Dhamma. That, that's the... Uh, in a sense, the primary quality of the Dhamma is that, that attribute of knowing, of, of wakeful awareness. So that, that um, and, and this is something probably all of us have experienced at a certain time, where there's a huge amount of stuff going on, things are really kind of busy and loud, and, and there's a, a moment of, oh, <laughs> here you are, kind of in the middle of all this activity and busyness, and yet the heart is serene. And that there can be loud noises, or a lot of movement, or powerful emotions, even, and uh, and yet there's a, a a serenity, a peacefulness, a, a a wholeness that the mind knows at that moment. Yes, sister. Yeah, well, it's rather than taking the peace into the everyday world, it's letting the everyday world into your peacefulness. So rather than, uh, you know, it's a, rather than a, a contemplation in a world of action, it's action in a world of contemplation. So, and that, this exercise that Lumpur would talk about, and he referred to uh, in uh, an earlier passage, was seeing the world as happening in your mind. That exercise of like, I am not moving around in the world, the world is happening in this mind. It's kind of, it flips it around. So that reminding, uh, the creating that reminding of the world is happening here, the world is arising and passing away here in the space of this mind. And that that shift of, of, of framework, like changing the framework of what is happening, even though our everyday realities, we are sitting in the sala, uh, I am moving around in the world, yes, but no. <laughs> and that, that um, in a sense, like uh, constantly remembering to, to shift that, uh, that perspective and sort of, in uh, sense, rewrite, re redraw the framework for experience. Then, then, like if you're standing on the tube and there's you know, 200 people squished in the carriage, then you can reflect this feeling hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Maybe more smelling and feeling than, than you'd like, but here it is. Where is this happening? This is all just arising and passing away in the mind. Is it not? And it's not like a mind game. You know, it, that's actually how it is. So you're not trying to make yourself believe something that isn't really the, the truth, but it's like developing that reflection. 
developing that the the perception of um, of the of anicca really the arising and passing away of experience in the present moment, and so that then there's a, a reframing of of uh, of the sense of me and my practice, and also as he's pointing out here, like for most people, meditation equals making the objects tranquil and being able to uh, effectively get the objects to calm down. And so, and as he said, he got quite good at that. But then what it's pointing to is that peace, the peace of Nibbāna, the peace of liberation, is the peace of the, the subject, not the peace of... The, it's not inactivity in the object. The, the object, the, 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 the flow of the kind of organic patterns of change of the world is, is, is going to carry on. That's the... the, the the karma of the perceptive field. See, you have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. But the peace is there in the attitude, not in the object. So if you take a couple of principles like that, just like in terms of that, as a practice, to just take a little phrase like, peace is in the attitude, not in the, not in the object, not in the world. Or the world is, in, the world is, is, uh, is happening in my mind. The world is moving in my mind, I'm not moving in the world. Just take a little phrase like that and say, okay, all day long, <laughs> today, my project is to remember peace is not in the, in the, in the world, peace is in the attitude. And the, the interest, one of the really interesting and powerful uh, things with respect to that is as you apply that, then it doesn't bring about a kind of spacing out or dislocation, but rather as a, a way that that seeing that the world is happening in your mind rather than you being out in the world, then it actually somehow enables the mind to respond to the different events and exchanges and contacts that occur in a far more attuned way. There's, there's much less dukkha, imbalance and disharmony. But there's much more sukha. <laughs> the, the mind is attuned to the people and places and things that need to, need to happen. Also, if you're in a car, it's, it's kind of interesting. Not as a driver. <laughs> This is not for drivers. This is for passengers in a in a, a car or in a, a uh, in a bus or a, if you sit in the in the front seat or you, you 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 can do this as an exercise with the road rather than being in the car going along the road. Uh, and I don't try this with your hands on the steering wheel, <laughs> but uh, allowing the the road to come through your mind, allowing the the you know, the, the, the you, you're sitting there and then the. The, the road arrives in your consciousness rather than you traveling along. And uh, it can be a bit kind of <laughs> freaky. Uh, and, uh, but if it's not too disturbing, it's a, it's a very good situation to recognize because you're sitting still. You're not, as a passenger, you're not having to kind of do anything or do any decision making. You can simply sit there and just 
use that as an exercise of shifting the perception rather than me going along the road in this car you're allowing the road to arise and pass away in consciousness and then it's the it's it's a steady rate of change as the as the vehicle's moving along and just letting those those changes kind of arise and 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 pass away kind of flow through the flow through the awareness and so it's a i think it might even be one of, uh, an exercise that Douglas Harding talks about somewhere along the way yeah um but it's uh for those who are traveling in vehicles regularly it's a it's a, a very interesting exercise to perform yes <laughs> well, it's it's a good question. I mean, in a way, that's one of the reasons sitting meditation is a really good exercise because you can learn to work with physical pain um, in smallish doses or largish doses according to your own judgment. You don't want to be sort of ridiculously heroic and injure yourself, but you can because pain, like fear and desire and uh, and possessiveness they're very uh, strong kind of non-conceptual instincts like i own this or i hate this or i'm afraid of this or or this is this is awful and that, you know the, the words can describe it but the feelings are there before the words right so those have, those are are um uh, uh say instincts or, or powerful emotional states that you can get familiar with in, in the meditation so physical pain has a, a very strong uh, reaction to get away from it to do something to to not feel it and so in meditation yeah it's a, a serene environment you've got ma- uh, supportive conditions to look at those instinctual reactions and taking those those moments okay i can my my leg is really screaming but uh, can I relax the attitude towards it? And then maybe just for a second or half a second, it's like, oh, for a moment there, there was the pain. It was still there, but there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. Oh. So that then uh, those small, in small doses, you can see, oh, look at that. Even when there's a strong feeling of pain, the mind can not make a problem out of it. Aha. It doesn't, it's not something that's intrinsically bad and wrong and got to get away from. So the more that you can catch a glimpse of that, and in a very sort of uh, controllable environment like the meditation, or where you can change your posture and so on and get away from that, then it's it's showing you from direct experience that there can be pain and can and it can be absolutely not a problem. 
And at first it's just a few seconds here and there, and then more and more you find that you can extend that, the more you train yourself. I mean, it's a matter of training. So you're, you're training the mind not to be, uh, say, pulled in by those instinctual reactions of, like, i got to have, or I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in danger here, or I, I hate. Uh, but uh, recognizing, oh, this is fearing, or this is wanting, or this is hating. And that the, um, the training of meditation then helps the mind to know those emotional reactions and not to be, say, dominated by that. Say, yeah, that's a painful feeling, but it doesn't have to be run away, it doesn't have to be hated, it doesn't have to be feared, it's just unpleasant. Or something is very attractive, you have a, uh, a very comfortable feeling or a beautiful memory or something. Say, yes, it's a beautiful memory, but it doesn't have to be grasped, it's just a passing feeling. So that you use that, say, uh, very benign and a more controllable situation, so that then you, you learn in that safe environment uh, how to, the, you, uh, so that you know from direct experience, it's not an idea, you know the mind can be with a painful feeling and it's absolutely not a problem. And then when you're in the dentist chair, and then there's those, those instinctual reactions that are triggered, then part of the mind knows, not as a concept, but as a kind of a, a, a learnt sense, this can be known as a, uh, just as a, a mental event. The mind doesn't have to say this is bad and wrong and shouldn't be. So you're developing a faculty of mind that can stand back from and be aware of those painful feelings. And, not make an issue out of it. And so over and over again in the, in, the, in, in the suttas, you get descriptions of people when they're ill or they're injured, and <clears throat> they, they, they say, uh, uh, you know, um, yeah, how, you know, how are you feeling? I heard you ill. And he said, um, yes, I am ill, and my painful feelings are increasing. They are not decreasing. <laughs> and I kind of, in a very sober way, describe, yes, it's like there's a, 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 a leather band tied around my head being tightened by a by a butcher, and I think, oh, right, very nice. <laughs> and that um, then the advice is how to, to deal with that painful feeling, with that quality of, of, uh, of say, um, reflection, and, uh, and uh, not uh, training the mind to not identify with it. So the more you learn it in the shrine room, and the, and the meditation cushion, then the more you can, you can find that ability when you're in the dentist chair, and, other situations, and it's it's surprising sometimes that, uh, and often it's just like for a moment, like a few seconds here and there, that it's like, oh, just for a second, there was the pain, but it wasn't a problem. Is that that's how it takes shape in my mind? Look at that! Wow! Yeah, it was really painful, but somehow for like half a second there was nothing wrong with that, and it's actually sometimes. The more inescapable it is, then the, the easier it is to work with. When you've got an option, like if I just can't move, it'll go. But if, it's, if it can't be escaped, something can relax. Like, okay, well, there's, I'm strapped in this chair, there's nowhere to go, okay. And that, that just to, to be aware of that for a, a brief moment, a, you know, a, couple, a half a second, a couple of seconds, that in that moment, you've learned a really important lesson, not as a concept, but you're, there's like a body learning. 
It's like riding a bicycle. Like, oh, this this is how it can. This is how it's done. There is pain, but that which knows the pain is not pained. Oh. So maybe I'll just carry on with this, another page this evening. This is a very long talk, this one. There are different ways of talking about this, of course, different terms that people use. Some like to refer to the Buddha mind or Buddha nature. In the Theravada, they don't use words like that. So being a Theravadan Buddhist, if I use such language, I get this feeling. But you know, it's good enough, actually. Even though I am programmed by the Theravada school, last night somebody asked, can you see the mind? Can you see the Buddha nature? What is the Buddha nature? Where is the Buddha nature mentioned in the Pali Canon? Well, there is no such thing as Buddha nature in the Pali Canon. But to think we can't possibly allow that kind of terminology is like doctrinal dictatorship. The point is to realize or recognize the reality rather than to hold to, if there is a Buddha nature, where is it? Then someone might say, well, you know, it's in your heart. Then you think, in my heart? But irrespective of whether this is orthodox or not, you might still find it a useful term for directing your attention towards recognizing inner peace, non-attachment, cessation, nibbana. That is the point. You have to trust in your own recognition of it. This is not something that you create. It isn't as if you're trying to create the Buddha nature or peacefulness or get samadhi and get this, get that, get rid of your defilements. That would be to miss the point and to be caught up in trying to achieve, attain, become, get rid of. It's very clearly stated in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths that the cause of suffering, dukkha, is attachment to desire. Even the desire to become tranquil is a cause of suffering. If you desire tranquility and get it, it might last for a while, but then it goes again. And if you're attached to that tranquility, you feel the sense of loss. You might think you've acquired something through a controlled situation, but then you go back into London, back to the office, and uh, can't meditate here, too much stress, too many difficult people, too much noise. You then decide that the marketplace is not where you can find peace, because that is the way it seems. No Buddha nature in the middle of London. Amravati is where it's at. There's plenty of it here. That's a joke. (laughs) (laughs) We tend to empower words, but the more we are aware, the more we realize that words are things to be used rather than to be grasped as though they are somehow the most important thing. Like the term Buddha nature, for example. Is that important or not? It is two words, Buddha and nature. Is that orthodox Theravada? We can get into this question of whether it's orthodox Theravada or not. Or maybe it's a kind of inclining towards Mahayana. We empower words like Mahayana and Theravada. But these two are just words. Just concepts. Buddhism. Buddha. These are things we create in the mind and then interpret them. If we are biased... We could think that all forms of Buddhism except Orthodox Theravada is somehow not quite right, not the real teaching, heretical. We could put it in terms of heretical and completely dismiss it. I've known Buddhist monks totally dismiss Mahayana, even though they don't know anything about it, because they heard it wasn't Orthodox, wasn't the real teaching. 
that is adopting the biases and prejudices that go with any convention. Whatever we incline towards, we tend to grasp. And then those things that don't align well within that structure, we dismiss. If we are orthodox Theravadans, we can feel aware, we can be aware of how threatened we feel by Mahayana terminologies. So that's a, a, a very um, sort of classic Lumpur Sumedho uh, piece of reflection about uh, the use of, of language and uh, how, uh, even though he says that there's no such thing as Buddha nature in the Pali canons, that's, uh, that's true, and that uh, you get, um, say, esteemed Buddhist teachers talking about how you know, Buddha nature is a heretical term or inaccurate or inappropriate. But um, it's also very much a, uh, it's a part of the forest tradition that uh, the Buddha mind or that quality of buddho uh, means awake. The, the word buddhi or buddha means awake, wake up. And so that frequently, not just Lumpur Cha, but uh, other teachers of the forest tradition would say taking refuge in Buddha essentially means being awake. It's not just revering Gautama Buddha as our teacher and the founder of this religion, but to genuinely take a refuge in Buddha, is to wake up, to, to be wakeful. So in that respect, uh, I like to use the, the, the word vicha, uh, the Pali word vicha, V-I-J-J-A, long A at the end, vicha, as, uh, say, representative of that quality of uh, awakened awareness. That's what it means. Avicca, ignorance, is not seeing, not knowing. Vicha is knowing or seeing. And so that... Uh, in many respects, my experience of being around people from the northern tradition, when they speak about Buddha nature, that quality of, of wakeful awareness, which is an intrinsic capacity of mind, that the term vicha, uh, awakened awareness, is a very natural correspondent for that. And so that it's also, in that, that respect, it's significant that in the qualities of the Buddha, when we recite them in the morning chanting, evening chanting, then you have this phrase, vicha charana sampano. So vicha and charana, vicha is awareness, charana is conduct. So it's like impeccable in conduct and understanding, or uh, perfect in, in impeccable in, or perfect in, in awareness and, and conduct. And so the, um, uh, I feel that those two qualities together, that the uh, awareness is that which is transcendent and, uh, and knowing and awakened, and then, the, and its partner is the charana, the activity within the, the sense world, and the, the the two mirror each other. The, one is the uh, uh, an internal aspect, the other is the external aspect, but they're both, uh, say, attributes of that Buddha quality. And so, um, uh, Lumpur Sumedho was one of his most distinct characteristics: is his flexibility in terms of using different terminology, and sometimes using Christian or theistic uh, Hindu. Um, kind of terms that he's picked up from here, there, and everywhere, and very happy and very comfortable in that. And then, quite again, quite happy for other, you know, not deliberately upsetting other people, but not particularly intimidated or bothered if other people get, say, well, Huffy, you shouldn't say that, Ajahn Samedha. You you're, a, you're a Hindu, or you're an Advaita Vedantist, or you're, you're teaching Mahayana, or you're, you're, you're talking about God. How can you talk about God? You're a Buddhist. You know. So, uh, but he was, he liked to experiment, and and his basic principle was to speak in a way that helped people to be liberated from suffering, rather than sticking to uh, fixed 
doctrinal niceties. So this is a very good instance of Lumpur speaking in that way. So any last reflections, questions, thoughts? Yes. So, uh, when you mentioned the writing of the Buddha, uh, later in the locality, mm-hmm. and there were other words, and the outside of the what does it reflect? Because you also said that uh, one can only know the world through his uh, senses. That's, that's the only thing to experience. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Yeah, loka vitu, uh, the knower of the worlds, or or knower of the world, so that it's, to me, that that reflects the the mind that is uh, is undeluded about how the world is formed from perception and and memory uh, and language. And so the knower of the world is not just aware of what's going on in the world, but aware of how the world is put together. You see what I mean? So that how the mind forms the, uh, the, the, its own impressions of the world. So that uh, the, the knower of the world is, say, it can be interpreted as meaning being able to see in all sorts of different dimensions, but I feel it also means uh, knowing that the sense world is just the sense world. Knowing that it's it's uh, empty and transient quality, so knowing that the the world has forms and shapes, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, but also knowing that the world is is empty, is void of substance. So, like a a beam of light has uh, has a shape, but no substance. That the you, know, you can put your hand through it. There's no resistance. As your uh, there's no light doesn't have any weight. It's not solid. But you can see the shape of a beam of light. So that, that in the same way, the mind that is truly awake and aware, that Buddha mind, then it sees the patterns of the world, but does not give them any intrinsic value or solidity. So sometimes instead of emptiness, I like to use the word transparency. So that you can, like, like, a, like a, a glass, you can see through it. So that the, the mind that is, the, the lokavidu, the mind that knows the world is also sees the transparency of the world. Does that make sense? Okay, that's enough for today, I think. <laughs>